We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast that focuses on the intersection between pop culture and Torah, how our understanding of pop culture is influenced by our tradition and how uh, our tradition influences our understanding and appreciation of the shows and movies that we watch, the music that we listen to, and the books that we read. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I am Rabbi Michael Nall. And today we are talking about the new FX Hulu series, Under the Banner of Heaven, starring the amazing, that's a Spider-Man reference, the amazing Andrew Garfield. That's right, Jesse. Under the Banner of Heaven stars Andrew Garfield as a uh, detective in Utah investigating uh, a a grisly murder of a mother and her 15-month-old baby. Um, the, uh, the, the, the story uh, is uh, taken from a true, true events uh, that happened in 1984 uh, in, in Utah, where, um, where a similar murder, double murder took place. Um, and uh, Andrew Garfield plays a detective that's investigating this murder. Uh, and as he does, uh, his faith as a Mormon is, uh, is, is shaken and, uh, and he finds himself uh, questioning um, his his own tradition, his own faith, as he uh, continues to dig into this uh, murder and realizes that there might be um, religious motivations from within his own faith tradition um, that that led to these uh, grisly events. The the show was adapted uh, from a book uh, that was published in 2003 by John Krakauer of the same name. Um, maybe we'll talk a little bit about that too. Uh, but to help us unpack all of this, there's, there's a lot here about... Um, about the show, about uh, the LDS Church, about um, about religious extremism, uh, about uh, the representation of faith and, in particular, of uh, the Mormon faith uh, within pop culture. There's a lot here to unpack, and we have a really special guest with us today to help us unpack all of it. Um, we're honored to be joined by uh, Professor Peter Eubanks. Uh, Peter is a professor at James Madison University of French. Uh, and uh, he is also a Latter-day Saint, a member of the LDS Church. Uh, Peter, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. This is exciting. It's Welcome. great to have you here. Um, so let's let's start out like right off the jump. What did you think of this show so far? And just as uh, so our, our listeners are aware, uh, we uh, there have only been so far three episodes that have dropped of this series. We're going to talk about all of them, spoilers and all. Um, so if you haven't seen the show yet, and you uh, want to be spoiler-free, watch the episodes, uh, um, and then uh, rejoin us and listen to our conversation. Okay, so three episodes in, what do you think of the show, Peter? Right, thanks. Well, I've seen the first three episodes that have dropped so far. Um, one of the things that drew me to the series that is apparently a difference from the book, which I haven't read, I've read portions of it when it came out, is that this includes a new actual member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, played by Andrew Garfield, who plays the detective who investigates these grisly murders. And so I thought, not only will this be representing these sort of crazy fundamentalists that I have no identification with whatsoever, 
but now there's going to be an actual Latter-day Saint like me who's going to be portrayed by a very famous and well-known actor. And I thought this will be interesting to see how he's portrayed. And uh, so far, you know, my impression is that from the way he talks, the things he says, the vocabulary he uses, uh, he doesn't speak in a way that's recognizably Latter-day Saint at all. I mean, that's not how I talk to my family or my wife. That's not how the people in my community talk, my family members, my friends, colleagues. Uh, so there's something unrecognizable and foreign about the way that he talks and, and behaves. You know, that's so so interesting that you say uh, that that you uh, that you say that, Peter. Um, I in watching the show, it you know, it, it knowing a few uh, Latter Day Saints. Um, and you know, just kind of being a student of religion uh, in general, it, it struck me that the uh, and I haven't read the book, so I don't know if this is a feature of the book too. It struck me that um, that the that the writers of the show, the showrunners, uh, must never have met a Mormon before in their life because <laughs> the way that these characters talk don't strike me as recognizably uh, a part of the uh, of the LDS Church, at least as I've encountered it. Um, and and putting even that aside. Um, they don't even talk like human beings as I've ever experienced human <laughs> beings talked about. Right, so like, right. It makes me wonder whether the people who, who made the show um, have ever actually encountered another human being before. Um, so I, I wonder if you if you would be willing um, to, to just help us a little bit, you know, assuming that many people who are listening um, to this podcast um, don't have a lot of exposure to the LDS church, may not know many members of the LDS church. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the uh, about the history and the tenets of faith of, of, of the LDS church? For us yeah. rabbis and for our listeners. And to our rabbis, right, that's right. Yeah, sure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the question. And thank you again for having me on the podcast. Uh, our, our church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, which is the name that we prefer. Mormons is a nickname that started as a 19th century slur. I don't think anyone considers it a slur anymore. That's not the problem with it today. I think the problem with it today is that it's just not accurate. That's not how we see ourselves. We see ourselves as Latter-day Saints or members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, we see ourselves as neither Protestant nor Catholic, but still well within the Christian tradition. We see ourselves as a restorationist branch of Christianity. So the idea that uh, Christianity as preached and practiced by Jesus Christ himself had to be restored to the earth. That is that he had an organization, he had a gospel, a set of doctrines, that over time uh, lost significant and precious parts of it, and that those had to be restored and that the restoration had to happen via a newly called prophet, that there was a kind of silence from the heavens for a period where there were no prophets, no apostles on the earth, but starting in uh, the early 1800s, uh, God had other plans and um, helped there to be a, a restoration of this original or pure Gospel. So that's that's where it starts. So that's why we have, uh, in addition to the Bible, we have the Book of Mormon, so a new book of scripture that uh, came along as part of that restoration, prophets with teachings, a restoration of uh, temple worship and of temple rituals and ceremonies that are very important to the faith, um, and, and various other doctrines that are seen as a kind of restoration of what's called primitive Christianity. Thanks for that. That's that's really helpful. And I, I wonder, were you raised in the LDS church? Uh, yes, I was. Uh, on my father's side, I'm a fourth generation Latter-day Saint. His grandfather was one of the first people who converted to the faith over 100 years ago in eastern North Carolina. 
my mother is uh, from southern Germany and she converted as a teenager. Um, so I, I know that uh, that um, that evangelism is is a, a big part of the LDS uh, church. It's it's co common for uh, LDS uh, youth to, uh, to to spend some time uh, as missionaries. I believe that your own that your own children uh, either have been or are serving as missionaries right now. Yes, my oldest son, who's nineteen, is currently a missionary in France and the France Paris Mission, which is where I served my mission in the late nineties. So it's kind of fun to share experiences with them. Speaking, are, speaking of, of that, Peter, I'm wondering, you know, we're, we're a, a podcast about religion and pop culture. Um, I think so many of our listeners' uh, misconceptions about uh, the LDS church comes from pop culture, right? Yeah. Comes from uh, somewhat offensive pop culture, comes from, right, the, the, the play The Book of Mormon, uh, yeah. comes from um, the uh, show Big Love. Yeah. Uh, so I'm wondering what what you can share about some of the the most common misconceptions about the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints uh, that many of our listeners may assume to be the case and assume to be true uh, that that are not sure i mean there's a bunch i guess some of the biggest ones that i hear when i when i talk to people and it's changing because you know we're living in a very transparent age there's so much information that's available i think the kinds of questions that people ask in 2022 were not the kinds of questions I got when I was in elementary school in the 1980s, right? Uh, but still, like polygamy, for example, polygamy is not something that we practice in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It was a limited 19th century practice that was abandoned in 1890, um, but that's not something that that's not a part of us. Um, another misconception is that the church or the church membership is largely based in Utah, or even in the United States. Uh, the majority of our membership now lives outside the United States. That's been the case for about two decades. The majority of, of Latter-day Saints are not English speakers. So it's a very international uh, church with the majority living uh, outside of the US. Um, perhaps uh, the, the temple or the temple rituals, uh, there's sometimes this aura of secrecy around that all the Mormons, they're these secret people who who do these secretive things, uh, I don't think that's the case at all. I think, as you mentioned, you know, we, we do have this sort of missionary effort and, you know, the, the fact that we're out knocking on doors trying to tell people what we believe, stopping people in the streets and on the metros in Paris and trying to share some of our beliefs, you know, doesn't coincide very well with a supposedly secretive faith. It's a very poorly kept secret if, if we're out uh, you know, trying to share it with everyone. So, there is, you know, when it comes to the temple, there is a notion of the sacred, right? Sacred and secret are not the same thing. Sacred means you don't maybe talk about it in every time and space. You know, you, you find the right times and places to talk about certain specifics. Um, so I guess I would just start there. I think those are maybe some of the more common misconceptions out there. And, and I would and I would say you know that there's an, there's a, a way in which um, we you know uh, members of the Jewish tradition. Uh, um, might understand that 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 our our tradition isn't a secret we you know jesse and i uh, uh in particular but you know many of our colleagues uh and certainly and not secret we we share it with our millions of listeners millions of listeners on on, <laughs> on Laura. um but uh but we also have a strong sense of um of 
uh, of particularism too that there are that that you know there is a that that there is a, a a meaningful distinction between those who are you know within the Jewish community and those who are not within the Jewish community and we we honor and preserve those distinctions in in certain ways too so that it strikes me as uh, um, related to what you're describing in uh, the uh, in the LDS tradition but I mean I know that you have Jesse um, and uh, uh, many many uh, Jewish teenagers who have gone on USY on Wheels which Jesse and I have both been on and and uh, led uh, during the course of summer, make stops in Salt Lake City, where we go and visit the uh, Mormon temple in, in Salt Lake City, the flagship temple, and um, have met, um, you know, really lovely folks there who were thrilled to be able to share um, about their faith with us, knowing that, that they were proselytizing to us, they were just uh, sharing their beliefs with us and uh, and and describing with pride um, uh, their their traditions and 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 their in their church. I don't know if that was your experience too, Jesse, when when we went to Salt Lake City. Uh, absolutely. So, Peter, I'm wondering if you could sort of share that distinction. Judaism is a faith uh, which we we do not proselytize. Right? We actually there there is a tradition, um, often a misconception, but a tradition that when somebody uh, is interested in converting to Judaism, uh, there would be some that would turn that person away several times before they actually are welcomed in to participate in the process of educationally and ritually going through conversion. Um, so I wonder if you could talk more about that, the, the idea of educating somebody versus proselytizing um, and how we living in you know, 2022 America, the melting pot uh, where we celebrate uh, the uh, I guess the the pluralism, for lack of a better term, of our country. Uh, talking to to two rabbis, um, how do you sort of balance that idea of um, proselytizing versus understanding that there is beauty in the um, diversity of the fabric that is our nation? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I think immediately of something that. Uh, Joseph Smith said in the 1830s or 1840s, he was the first president of the, of the church and he was the, the prophet who was the sort of this restorationist prophet who was you know, called by God to, to bring primitive Christianity back to the earth and its sort of purity. Um, he said, uh, you know, have the Methodists any truth? Have the Baptists any truth, the Presbyterians? Of course they have, you know, he said Mormonism, he used the word. Because uh, he knew that that was the word that people outside the faith understood. But he said, Mormonism is all truth. It comprehends all truth. If it's true, if it's true, then as someone who believes in God, as a person of faith, I'm obligated to try to accept that truth. And it doesn't really matter where it comes from. So uh, we see our faith as trying to, you know, learn from other faith traditions, learn from, the, I mean, in Judaism, you have millennia of collective wisdom and texts and thinking and studying and writing and debating, and it's a very rich tradition. And there, there are other faith traditions uh, also very rich that all of us can learn from. So I think there's a real interfaith uh, aspect to our religion. I'm thinking of the Latter-day Saints when they were sort of pushed around the country until they had to be exiles in Utah. But for a time period, they were right on the banks of the Mississippi in a sort of small city that they erected called Nauvoo, Nauvoo, Illinois, and I visited there. And it's a very historic site and lots of sacred things happen there. But uh, when they were drafting the charter for the city of Nauvoo, one of the things that they specifically wrote into the charter was that it would be a place of religious freedom where 
the First Amendment protections uh, would be very strong. And they specifically listed all the people who would be welcome there, including Mohammedans, which was the term that they used at the time for practitioners of Islam. Um, you know, there wasn't a Muslim for probably 800 miles from the banks of the Mississippi in, 18, in the 1830s, in the late 1830s. Uh, but this, it just, it, there's a certain openness even then towards other religious faith traditions. And so I think that's important. You do have to balance that, of course, with uh, what we see as a scriptural mandate in the New Testament from Jesus when he says to go forth and preach the gospel to all nations, right? So we do feel a responsibility to share those beliefs. I mean, the way that it works out for me personally is I'm happy to have interfaith dialogue with anyone or dialogue with people who are of no particular faith or have lost their faith or, or feel very secular I'm happy to exchange ideas. With, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an academic. I'm happy to exchange ideas with people. That's what I like. I'm in entities. That's what I do for a living is exchange ideas with people. Um, and if I sense that someone is interested beyond sort of academic exchange, then I'm happy to sort of shift the conversation towards personal experiences, more spiritual realm, feelings, things like that where it gets more personal. And so I think you just have to sort of read the room, right? You have to read the situation. Uh, you don't immediately go from zero to proselytizing, right? That seems inappropriate and, and not very effective either. Uh, you just kind of, you are who you are. You know, someone asked me, what'd you do this weekend? And my wife spoke in church as she did. She gave a brief sermon last Sunday for Mother's Day. You know, I'll tell them that. And if they're weirded out by that, then that's fine. And if they're just sort of academically curious about that, that's fine. And if they're sort of sincerely interested in a faith conversation, then I'm here for that too. Just kind of have to read the situation and behave appropriately, I think. Right, and I, you know, and I will say that um, it, it, to Jesse's point also, you know, I think that that's uh, one of the ways in which um, uh, Judaism um, is commonly misunderstood and commonly misunderstands itself, I, I think, you know, that, um, uh, that the disposition that we traditionally have uh, toward not proselytizing um, has translated for some into thinking that, that you know, Jews um, uh, don't encourage people to become Jewish if they seek that for themselves. Um, but, but of course, you know, both, both Jesse and I, um, you know, uh, warmly embrace those who are um, uh, looking to be, to choose, uh, to choose the path of Judaism uh, for themselves. And there is even within Jewish tradition, uh, in it's, uh, you know, some texts that are shared with with various Christian traditions. Um, we say in the Psalms, uh, goyim Adonai Malach, right? Say among the nations that God is that God is sovereign, right? Um, so that there is this um, tradition of evangelism, even within Jewish texts and Jewish traditions. It's just one that for various um, historical reasons, mainly with some ideological reasons, they uh, they got kind of um, uh, repressed a little bit uh, over time, and in some positive ways, I think too. I want to come back to that uh, in 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 just a moment. Um, uh, but that uh, but that you know, sharing about your tradition um, and even you know, encouraging somebody who may be on the path to joining your tradition is not necessarily the same as going from zero to proselytizing in, in sixty seconds. So uh, I, I like that framing, um, and I, I, I'm wondering. I mean, this is something that's actually you know uh, a, a theme that's explored by the show um, is, you know, what happens 
when a uh, when a tradition you know believes it is in possession of revealed truth does that um, does that in inevitably uh, uh, produce fundamentalism and even violent extremism um, right is there is there a, a relationship between uh, you know received tradition re revelation um, and extremism, the the show I think is suggesting yes, there definitely is. I su I suspect the book is too, having been published in the wake of of 9/11, that was very much in the atmosphere. Um, but uh, um, but but it feels to me that that's one of the arguments that the show is making is that you know because uh, the LDS Church uh, you know is it embraces. Uh, modern prophecy, um, and you know, and, and is, is zealous about it in some ways that that produces um, uh, violent extremism. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that that is exactly uh, one of the premises of the show and of the book, as I understand it. Um, that once you believe in revealed religion, you know, where are the limits? If anything can be revealed to anyone at any time, and it's not just prophets, because there's also in our faith tradition. The important principle of personal revelation. So God speaks to the prophet for sort of the church generally or for the world generally, outlines general doctrines, principles, truths, but then there's also personal revelation, right? You can pray to know how to handle something at work. You can pray and God can speak to you in the various ways that he does about how to raise your child or how to deal with the difficult situation in your family or, or you know, whatever it might be, an interpersonal relationship, um, you know, that, that is one of the premises. And I, you know, it's funny, just, just last night, I was reading with my kids in the book of Numbers, uh, where, you know, Moses says at the end of chapter 11, would that all men might be prophets, right? At least that's the King James translation. And then in the next chapter, which I read this morning, chapter 12, um, you know, Miriam and Aaron come to him and kind of seem to test out this theory. And they say, okay, you know, you, you just married this Kushite, this Ethiopian woman. We don't know if we're okay with that. And you said, you know, that anyone can be a prophet. And so you, who are you really? You know, are you really a higher authority than any of us who can also receive personal revelation from God? At least that's my very layman's uh, basic interpretation of, I shouldn't be interpreting numbers with two rabbis uh, on the air. But uh, that's kind of how I saw that. And to me, there's, there's a principle there about, yes, even where there is revelation, where there is communication from God to a prophet or to individuals on a personal level, there are still guardrails in place, right, around that revelation. The revelation or the communication from God can't be a total free-for-all, right? There are still rules. There are still bounds. Um, you can't, you know, you can't just say, as is the case in this series, um, as was the case in 1984, well, God gave me a revelation that I'm supposed to kill this woman and her 15-month-old and expect that that is, and expect that that's somehow a legitimate understanding of how revelation works, right? I mean, that revelation goes against so many other revelations that are in place and that ultimately supersede uh, any kind of uh, individual uh, attitude about it. So I, I think that's important to keep in mind. You know, I, I sort of wonder, and Judaism may, may differ, slightly than some um, sex and denominations and uh, of Christianity. But, but because uh, I, I often tell people we are not a religion that uh, is biblical, we are a rabbinic tradition, 
right? And so while we are rooted in Torah and rooted in scripture, we are really rooted in 2000 years of the rabbinic interpretation of that scripture, um, which allows for um, some of that interpretation to be different than uh, some understandings of some faiths that say that that th this word is, is set in stone and uh, gospel, right? No pun intended, uh, and that there's no wiggle room in it. But, but as a result, uh, I often say the Torah is subjective, right? That it's possible for Mike and I to, to look at a single verse of scripture and interpret it differently. And, and truthfully, Mike and I, um, uh, many cases ha have, have similar uh, viewpoints, uh, maybe not with regards to uh, uh, Marvel the Eternals movie, but uh, we have similar viewpoints. Uh, certainly it's why Certainly not, the, certainly not when it comes to Spider-Man No Way Home. <laughs> but uh, it's why somebody of one uh, denomination in, in Judaism can look at a verse and interpret it totally differently than uh, somebody of another denomination. But if Torah is subjective, that means that, well, somebody can take an extremist viewpoint. Uh, somebody can say, okay, I refuse to accept it that way. And, and I look at, it, look at it differently. Um, I'm wondering, uh, Peter, if you could speak uh, about that uh, within you know, the, the LDS church. Is there uh, a sort of um, pre-exposure to certain ideas leads to one interpreting scripture in certain ways or interpreting ideology in certain ways, where if somebody is uh, taught other ideas, they may view scripture and ideology and theology differently. That's a really great question. Uh, there, there is a balance and there has to be a balance in our faith tradition, I imagine in, in any faith tradition to some extent or another, between sort of canon and doctrine and then room for the work of theology where you try to interpret that doctrine and, and so, and, and debate is a very healthy way and discussion and exegesis and analysis and contextualizing and, and all those things, discussion, those things are all very important in trying to figure out how to interpret things. And it's true that people might end up uh, in different places in terms of their interpretations, um, but they're, 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 that has to be balanced with a certain set of values or, or overriding principles, right? I mean, for a Latter-day Saint, or a Jewish person, or a Muslim, or a Catholic, or whoever of whatever faith, to say, God has authorized me to murder a young mother, a 24-year-old mother, and her 15-month-old, right? No matter how generous you want to be about the possibility of debate and discussion and being open to different interpretations, some interpretations really just have to be outside the pale, right? Some are so violent, so vile, and, and so contradictory of everything else in the tradition that they have to be considered outside the pale. So I think there's a balance there. There's a role, there's a role for sort of guardrails and doctrines and principles. There's a, there's a role for tradition and the, the ways in which tradition has taken us in certain directions on certain things. And there also has to be room for you know, debate and discussion and, and so forth. It's a balance. It's a balance that, it's a mature balance that mature people of faith have to continue to, to struggle with and to wrestle with. Can, can you unpack a little bit about how that is worked out within the, um, within the LDS tradition, within the LDS church? I mean, I have a sense 
of how we do it or or or, or maybe don't do it well within within Judaism. I, you know, I think of a of a you know kind of a core teaching in the rabbinic tradition um, is that you know there's a, a debate between two of the great schools of rabbinic tradition. They don't even say uh, in in the Talmud they don't even say what the debate is over. They just say it's a raging debate that lasts for three years. And then ultimately a voice comes from heaven and says both these and these are the words of the living God but the law follows the school of Hillel, one of the schools. And, uh, you know, so both, both are like accurate, uh, like plausible interpretations of revelation, right? Um, and, and nevertheless, the law follows one school. Well, the, and then the Talmud objects, well, you know, if both are the words of the living God, then why does the law follow this one school and not the other? And the answer that comes back is because they were kindly and modest and they practiced intellectual humility. They, they taught the opinions of the other school even before their own, right? So they also understood the, the opinions of the other school and then worked them into their understanding of their own positions. So th there is this sense that, you know, normativity um, is, is, is on some level more important than uh, revelation itself. And that the way of determining normativity within Judaism um, it, uh, in, involves um, uh, humility and, uh, and, and kindness and compassion, right? The, the, the and learning from those who, who think differently right. than you. Right. So the, the, you know, the real human uh, experience of uh, thinking about and living out those values is really paramount in, in determining you know, what's the law that should be practiced. Um, but Judaism is also, you know, some, some people say, if you hate organized religion, you'll love Judaism. There's no central religious uh, authority within Judaism. So there are lots of different Jewish communities with lots of different uh, uh, interpretations of what's normative or not normative. Um, and Judaism has produced its share of violent extremists too, uh, even in modern history. Um, so, uh, um, it, on the flip side, of course, is the fact that there have been plenty of examples of uh, of, of non-religious uh, uh, violent extremists too, right? So that's also present there. But I'm wondering um, uh, how that's all worked out within the uh, Mormon Church. I, I suspect that it's a, a different process. Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, there's some similarities. Um, I guess if, if I were to put it uh, briefly, I would say that the beliefs that we have in terms of what we believe to be true, what are our normative commitments, what are the doctrines that we ascribe to, uh, subscribe to, um, that which is taught by the president of the church, who is revered as a prophet, and his two counselors, who are also revered as prophets, prophets, seers, and revelators, that's the phrase, and the quorum of the 12 apostles, who are also 12 prophets, seers, and revelators. That which is taught by that body of people from the 1830s all the way until today, consistently by several of them across decades, across time, which has strong support in scripture or scriptural canon, the Bible, the Book of Mormon, some other writings, that is doctrine. And, uh, and so that's, that's how we know what we actually believe. Now, how to implement those doctrines, how, what those look like in practice, uh, that may change according to individual circumstances to some extent. I mean, again, you can't say, well, in my circumstance, I can go and I can cheat on my wife and it's okay because that's my circumstance, right? I mean, obviously there, there are limits there, but um, you know, how, you know, love one another, right? That's a very simple principle that may look slightly different for different people, but the principle is going to be the same. It's gonna be taught consistently in scripture. It's gonna be taught consistently, um, you know, by different church leaders across decades, across time, and uh, and maybe it'll look differently. Maybe in 2022, that means 
um, having a certain orientation towards refugees that maybe feels even more relevant uh, today than maybe it did in the 1830s. I don't know. I'm sure there are refugee crises then too. Maybe it says something about immigration. Maybe it says something about uh, injustice and, and inequalities and trying to rectify those because there's a lot of talk about that now. I mean, those are true principles in any time and place, but certain times and places will maybe call on certain principles uh, in different ways from other times and places. And that's where you get the debate and that's where you get the discussion. How do we implement these doctrines? What does it look like if for us right now where we are? So yeah, the, the, again, the doctrine comes from the president of the church, his two counselors, the 12 apostles at the sort of general church leadership level. And you try it, and if they're taught consistently, then that's, you know, that's doctrine. I'm wondering, um, going back to, to the show itself and really the book, uh, this fascination that Hollywood um, often has on religious extremism. Um, as was mentioned, this, the, the book that this show was based on came out uh, only about a, a year and a half after 9-11. Um, you, you know, and this is not uh, specific to the LDS church. Uh, best picture, I, I'm not sure if it was a nominee or if it won best picture was Spotlight. Uh, which, which came out uh, a few years ago, focus on the, the cover-up of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Um, right? Judaism is not uh, immune to our own extremism uh, and uh, misconduct uh, among clergy or uh, among institutions. There was a Pew study that, that came out a number of years ago, um, I think it was in 20. Uh, 16, which talked about how millennials are less religious than, than boomers and older Americans, um, but specifically talked about how they identify as more spiritual. They're just more skeptical of institutional religion. Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned that your, your children uh, going uh, as missionaries in the same way you were. Uh, I'm wondering how, when it's only sort of religious extremism that many uh, absorb the uh, television, uh, film, or, or what have you, uh, how we show the, the spiritual nature of our faiths uh, rather than um, just accepting why they are so skeptical of those religious institutions. Well, I guess you, you counter bad information by offering good information. And I think personal stories help a lot too. You know, if you talk about what your faith means to you, what it brings to your life, why you engage with it, you know, why my son who's 19, who has many friends who do not affiliate with a particular faith, many say they're spiritual, not religious, or many say, well, I was, you know, kind of Methodist growing up, but I haven't really gone since I was 11. And I don't really know if I believe in God, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. You know, this, like you said, this sort of millennial trend that seems to be moving away from organized religion anyway, or membership in a church or a faith tradition, um, it's sharing personal stories. You know, you know, my son, he's 19, he can say what I said when I was 19 in, in France, which is not the, the place that's, you know, you would think of as being super excited to have American Latter-day Saints, you know, telling them about their beliefs. Um, even though I had a wonderful experience there and, and you know, met many, many wonderful, wonderful people of all kinds of backgrounds. But you share personal stories. You say, this is what it means to me. This is how it's helped me. This is what it does for me. These are the challenges I face. 
you make it human. You know, these are the things that I'm thinking about. Oh, you have that question. I have that question too, but I'm not abandoning my faith because I have a question. That just causes me to dig deeper and open the books and, and open my brain and, and put my best thinking. You know, I'm, I'm convinced, and this is an art tradition, and I'm, I'm sure it, uh, it's a very strong principle in Judaism and a number of other uh, world faiths, but, you know, we, we worship God with our minds too, right? It's not just our hearts or our hands. Or I think there's an expectation that God wants us to use the brains that he's given us and to use the educational resources that we have. And uh, Joseph Smith taught that the glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. So gaining intelligence, gaining knowledge, and gaining increased critical thinking skills, to put it in my humanities professor terms, to me, that's religious activity, right? And that does mean grappling, and it does mean having questions and not always having the answers, but it means you're trying and you do get some answers. It's not like you're always lost in a sea of no answers. Uh, you know, that, that process gets you to a good place. It gets you um, to where you want to be or closer to where you want to be. So I think sharing just your personal journey with the faith, I think often uh, helps people to connect. You know, I actually uh, reflected on that a little bit around Passover time. There's this tradition we have uh, at the uh, Seder, the the uh, ritual meal that uh, that, that uh, we have on the first night or first two nights of Passover. There's a part of that uh, uh, ritual where we discuss um, uh, four uh, archety archetypal children uh, and say, you know, each asks a different kind of question about Passover. And I was reflecting on, uh, you know, the, the questions that and answers that are proposed for, for two of the children, the, the so-called wise child, the so-called wicked child. And it struck me that the, that the text was um, offering them both as a, as a paradigm of, of, you know, kind of partial truths um, that, uh, that that we and we need to incorporate both that the wise child um, operates you know very much within the tradition um, and so he's uh, he doesn't really interrogate it he doesn't uh, he doesn't question it um, and there's there's beauty in that of wholeheartedly you know embracing and standing within a tradition um, uh, our 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 tradition you know the book of Proverbs says Rashid Chochma Yirat Hashem that the beginning of wisdom is the is reverence for God. Right, so that that we can't really know anything unless we are, you know, rooted in a, in a, in a place uh, in in a particular disposition. But on the other side, you know, we we have the so-called wicked child, who's I think a little bit more rebellious than wicked, um, and he is an outsider looking in. And the and I think the the tradition is saying about him, um, like it's good to have a critical eye. Uh, toward things, but not to have exclusively a critical eye that you need you, to have. A you, you could question if you've bought into to right. ritual and faith and tradition, you can't question and scoff at it. Right, right. So you need to have a marriage of both, you know, that outsider and insider perspective. And it, it strikes me that there's a, a piece of, of, of that, um, that that you're reflecting on there. It, it also reminds me that you know, something that that you brought up before um, in this whole kind of dynamic of outsider and insider uh, that, uh, you know, the uh, that the LDS church um, uh, and its members have been, you know, throughout American history, a minority community. The show does uh, at various points um, at least comment on, acknowledge um, the, the, the persecution of members of the LDS church, um, sometimes at the hands of just, you know, average Americans, sometimes at the hands of the government. Um, and, you know, that experience 
of being a, a minority is sometimes persecuted or at least misunderstood minority, something that the uh, that the Jewish people knows um, uh, something about. Um, and and I and I'm wondering, uh, you know, how how prominently does that feature in into uh, Mormon thought and the Mormon experience of of being a a, a minority uh, community, a minority tradition, and and how does that shape uh, the uh, you know Latter Day Saints' understanding of themselves and their place in 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 the world? Yeah, that's a really great question. Thank you for it. Uh, the the memory of the persecutions, especially the kind of violent persecutions that you saw in the 19th century against Latter-day Saints is, is very fresh with us. It, it gets taught in Sunday school from the time you're a child, you go to church, you, you learn these stories and not so much to sort of, you know, throw pity on ourselves as to, to in a sense of gratitude. Like I have this religion now because these brave people suffered all kinds of things and they stayed loyal and they stayed true to the faith in spite of all of this opposition. And therefore I and my you know, here in Richmond, my comfortable suburban air conditioned environment, you know, if I can't show up to church on time, you know, what's my problem? <laughs> you have these people in the 1830s being, you know, they're all their property burned, their cattle stolen, you know, rape, murder, murder of children in some cases, as is portrayed in this series. And uh, I have now have a responsibility to make sure that I'm true to the faith in my circumstances, you know. Uh, maybe if the Book of Mormon musical comes out and makes fun of me a little bit, I'm not going to get all bent out of shape because it could be so much worse. And, uh, and I just should be grateful to, uh, to, to those who stayed true so that this faith could be carried on and I could have all the things that I'm getting out of my faith today. So yeah, it, that's very important in our, in our sense of identity and in our engagement with our faith is sort of recognizing the sacrifices of these of these either literal or spiritual ancestors in the 19th century. The, the, yeah. I'm sorry, I was just gonna say the, the series uh, does show something which was remarkable, which I did actually like. They showed uh, very briefly uh, a dramatization of the Hans Mill massacre. The Hans Mill massacre happened in October of 1838. It was just three days after the governor of Missouri issued the now infamous extermination order in which he said, the Mormons must be driven from the state of Missouri or exterminated. And that gave, you know, carte blanche to every lawless mob of which there were quite a few on the American frontier at the time, as you can imagine, to uh, pretty much do with the Mormons, with the Latter-day Saints as they pleased. And uh, the, the series actually shows that. And uh, it was actually about 200 to 250 men who were in the mob that committed this massacre. Um, you know, basically on the governor's orders, the film shows, I thought saw maybe 30 or 40, so the mob was a lot bigger, and uh, 17 men and boys, some as young as nine, were killed, and another 15 injured, and of course, houses burned down, property destroyed, and the women and children sort of left destitute, and so it was interesting, because that account of the Hans Mill massacre in Missouri looms large in our sense of identity, and sort of where we've been, and how we can be grateful for people who endured that, so that we can have the faith that we have today. And it was interesting just to see people who weren't Latter-day Saints depict that and, and sort of give it a place as an important uh, historical marker of identity for us today. Yeah, you know, it's uh, I appreciate you brought that up. It, it you know kind of ranks up there with me. We we talked to uh, I guess now it's probably about two years ago about um, the depiction of the um, 
the the attack on Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, that was in the the Watchmen show on HBO, um, as uh, as as showing us a a, a, um, a moment in American history that before that many white people at least didn't know about weren't because taught of our about. own ignorance, but also our own privilege. Right, exactly. Right, so th this that ranked up there with me of like. Uh, you know, ex moments in, in American history uh, that that I should have known about. Um, and I, for one reason or another, I, I didn't. Um, and, and it, you know, it, that's, that's one of the things that really kind of um, um, stuck with me about the show that, that, you know, that, that I'm, that I'm sitting with in, in discomfort. I, 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 what, what brought this up for me as you were talking was, when I, uh, here in Richmond, when the Book of Mormon uh, Broadway show came to Richmond, I went to go see it and there were um, uh, LDS missionaries outside handing out pamphlets. I thought it was great at the time saying, you know, you've seen the play now come and uh, like read the actual book. The book is always better. Yeah. The book yeah. is always better. It was, it was great. But as I reflected on it, it, it struck me that, you know, this is something that, uh, that, that, that Jews sometimes have to do too, that, that you, you know, because you, uh, because the sort of hegemonic um, culture, uh, you know, pokes fun at you, um, the, what, the, the best thing you can do in response is kind of like feel, act like you're in on the joke. And, but that did bother me about the show is, is that, you know, maybe it's true that there are um, uh, extremists that have come from within the LDS community. It's also true that there have been extremists that come within the Jewish community and certainly from uh, within the Christian community. It America, Hannah. <laughs> right, right. So the show would have bothered me much less if it was, I think, about, I don't know, an evangelical uh, bombing an abortion clinic. Right. And not necessarily a, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 a Mormon extremist um, uh, committee, right, to make a larger comment about religious extremism. Um, there's something about the sort of hegemonic culture uh, targeting this minority community as an example of something really dangerous and bad when that same phenomenon uh, can easily be pointed to in that larger culture. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, last week in the Wall Street Journal, there was a Latter-day Saint journalist who had an op-ed piece that I thought was really good. And one of the points that he made was that, you know, this kind of rhetoric that, oh, the Mormons are dangerous, right? We know where that rhetoric leads, you know, not that anyone's worried in 2022 about repeating, you know, a, an extermination order issued by a governor or anything like that. But, uh, and not just in our tradition, but in many faith traditions and even outside of the realm of faith, we know where that kind of otherizing rhetoric, if it starts to get out of hand, can lead, right? It starts with the small violations of human rights and then bigger violations and then violence and then you know, propaganda campaigns. And uh, we've seen that. And perhaps in the 21st century, no group of people have seen that more than uh, Jewish people have. Um, so we, had, we do have to keep that rhetoric in check, right? And I do think that I agree with him that uh, this series does Dance, start to dance the line a bit. So I, I agree with you that uh, there's something uncomfortable and unsettling about sort of punching down in that way, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, we, you know, we're, we're and we're living in a time uh, in which um, uh, uh, hateful words very often uh, translate into hateful deeds, um, and, and and you know, it's a, it's a it's a scary time because. Uh, those, I find this 
uh, to be true for for the Jewish people. I suspect it's also true for other minority communities uh, that um, that you know that that when when hateful, um, misguided, ignorant things are said, you know, uh, uh, among uh, people with power and within corridors of power, um, it's it's it, it can you know lead to particularly dangerous outcomes. So I think that that's a really important point to make and reminder to have for our moment in particular. Absolutely. Peter, we wanted to thank you for joining us uh, on this episode. Uh, we want to encourage our listeners to, to share, uh, comment, let us know what you think of uh, Under the Banner of Heaven and uh, the upcoming episodes, which you can watch and stream on Hulu. Uh, and uh, I, I'm more of a I, I'm I'm more of a tick tick boom Andrew Garfield fan than I am an under the banner of heaven Andrew Garfield fan. But uh, I'll, I'll let the rest of the series play out. I'm 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 partial to uh, to his role in the, the Social Network. I even uh, enjoy his Spider Man. Um, Peter, before we go, um, I suspect that you would not say that Under the Banner of Heaven is a good place to learn more about the LDS Church. A good book to a good resource to go to. Um, and uh, aside from reading uh, the the uh, the sacred scriptures of the LDS Church, the Book of Mormon, etc., um, is there a book that you could recommend, uh, or 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 a piece of media that you could recommend that that our listeners can learn more about the LDS Church from? Yeah, I would go to comeuntochrist.org. That's an official Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints website designed for people outside the faith who would like to get a basic idea of the faith. There's text, there's videos, there's chat with a missionary, you know, live, there's uh, there's all kinds of things you can do on there. So it's comeuntochrist.org. Great, thank you. Well, thank you again, Peter, for joining us. Uh, and until next time, I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. Take care, everyone.